This is the Bartholomew Town Podcast. Well, let me tell you something. It is great to be back here with you on Bartholomew Town after... This past Tuesday, we were off, and I've been dealing with a personal issue over the past week or so, and I've been looking forward to getting back in the studio, and woo, great to be here, as today we welcome in Providence mayoral candidate Brett Smiley. Of course, Brett's been on the show a number of times in his capacity, um, first as the Department of Administration head, and then even as a mayoral candidate, but he's ramped up his campaign. He had an official announcement uh, rollout, if you will, at the Wexford Innovation Center last week. He's already held a press conference on managing crime in the city, and there's a lot of specifics we got to today on this this conversation. Um, so, as always, a pleasure to have you on board, and like I said, great to be back. Man, I'll tell you what, I, I was, um, I'm, I'm fine, but I was, let me put it this way, I was looking forward to, to this moment of being able to just step back into the studio and get back to work. <laughs> you know, you guys ever have that where you're just like, all right, let, let's, let's just fast forward a week or so and get to the point where we're back in business and we are and we're kicking off this um well not kicking off or we're we're back to it with Brett Smiley here on B Town. Um a couple of things of course the radio show every Saturday at 3 p.m. on WPRO that's been a blast. It's been so great to get your feedback on that and it's fun to reach that you know that Saturday afternoon in the car audience. I'm really psyched about this for the warm weather. You know what I mean because that's a fun time to be in the car. You're kind of shifting from activity to activity. Give us a try. WPRO 99.7 FM AM 630 at 3 o'clock every Saturday. You'll hear content from the podcast, but you'll also hear some original, unique content that is exclusive to uh, the radio program. And of course, follow me on social media, Twitter, TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, even LinkedIn at Bill Bartholomew for daily digital content. Lots going on behind the scenes as we kind of ramp things up. You know what I mean? ramp things up. It's I didn't want to come out of the gate with like a million candidates and like over the top um, political political dialogue here in 2022. We've kind of been ramping it up, you know, having some interesting discussions, going into our recurring series inside Rhode Island Cannabis, inside Rhode Island Public Health. You know, we, we've been getting there, but now we're starting to get the feelings of a political season. Now it's starting to get into the bread and butter of what we do here on B-Town, and I'm psyched. We're going to have a lot of candidates. We're going to have a lot of discussions. We're going to have a lot of analysis um, and some events coming up as well. It's all in the hopper, and I couldn't be more thrilled to have you on board for it. If you have a thought, always send me an email, bill at ripodcast.com. That's open 24-7. I'm going to respond to you as long as, uh, as long as I'm alert. I'll be more than happy to get back to you. Again, that's bill at ripodcast.com. Okay, let's get to today's podcast conversation with Brett Smiley, running for mayor of Providence here on Rhode Island's podcast of record, Bartholomew Town feels like now we're in in campaign season but for the last year you know you just had your announcement last week but you've been in campaign mode for a while we've seen the stickers on cars you know you had the little league team everybody knew what was happening here it wasn't a big secret or anything like that but why now uh here as we are now into april why now open it up to the next level so to speak in terms of of getting the word out about your campaign and and uh you know where does it go from here i suppose yeah, you're right. I have been campaigning for a while, uh, but it's uh, it was an important kind of milestone in the campaign to have this announcement on last Monday. Uh, for the last year, I've been out listening to neighbors, uh, talking to community leaders, building a team, and and taking that feedback from the neighborhoods, from uh, from people to help kind of inform 
the policies and the direction for the campaign. And so the, the kickoff gave us a nice opportunity to, to kind of lay out the vision for both the campaign and, and my vision for the city. Uh, we launched a new website with some uh, much more detailed policy positions. Uh, we're able to show a, a broad coalition of supporters as we kind of launch into the spring and summer. And, you know, now it's five months to go. We're on, I, I, don't, I wouldn't say we're at the sprint phase yet, but we're definitely running at this point. Yeah, We've plus people. From walking to running. Right. And, and plus, people are now starting to think more and more outside of the inside baseball about the fact that, first of all, it is an election year. Because I bet if you polled, I don't know, 500 people in Rhode Island and asked, is this an election year? Are we going to be inside Providence? Is there going to be a mayoral race? Is there a gubernatorial race? I don't know how many people would say for sure. Oh, yeah, this is an election year. Um, so you're oh, definitely. I mean, we were out knocking doors last year. And when I would knock doors, I, I mean, I don't know what the percentage is, but often I would hear, oh, you're running against Mayor Lorza? No, no, Mayor Lorza's term limited. I mean, it just, I, people are busy. People have worried about their life and their kids and their job and the pandemic, and they're not obsessed with politics like some of us are. And so, you know, now people are starting to tune in, I think. Right. So interestingly enough, Dan McGowan's column from uh, March 29th titled Brett Smiley wants to be the best snowplower in America. Is that enough to make him mayor of Providence? That's an interesting starting point because look, the reality is you think about, of course, Cianci, this was what he was famous for trash pickup and just making sure that the logistics of the city were operational. You know, how much is that an accurate statement that snow plowing, managing the city from a practical um, street corner level up approach, how much of that is, is the, the dynamics of your message? Uh, I, you know, I think it's it's pretty fair. Honestly, I'd rather have the analogy to Tom Menino than Buddy Cianci. But, uh, <laughs> <Sure. laughs> uh, but it is fair. I mean, from what I've heard over the last now thousands of conversations is these kind of core quality of life issues, these neighborhood issues, streets and sidewalks, potholes and, and paving, snow removal, um, the ATV and motorcycle issue, which I think we talked about the last time I was on the pod. Um, you know, these are what citizens and residents and Providence are worried about. And, and the point I tried to make is, you know, some of these other issues, some of these big national issues, like they're important and I have an opinion on them, um, but there are other people who can do that work. There's no one other than the city and the mayor who can make sure that kids get to school on time because the streets are plowed and the buses can roll, uh, that your streets and sidewalks get fixed, that, you know, Community policing is real and working in a way that uh, makes neighborhoods feel safe and communities feel safer. And so, you know, that is solely the responsibility of the city. And I think that needs to be the priority. It's certainly my priority. Yeah, I, re I recall the recent special election Senate District 3 where Sam Zurier was successful. And look, you know, there were a lot of candidates with ideas about Green New Deals and things that were pretty, you know, global in their scope. But Zurier won that election, I think, largely, and I think many People believe largely on the notion, similarly, of the neighborhood, the, the literal practical things that impact people on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, has that campaign informed your thought process in any way, shape, or form, or is it just sort of two people thinking in the same manner? Um, you know, I certainly watched that closely. I think the other thing in Sam's case, which is also central to, to my candidacy, is there was a lot of goodwill for him. 
from when he was a city council person, and particularly his, his advocacy around the schools. Uh, you know, he was a school board member, he was a parent, he was really active in the, the parents' effort around the, after it was recently renovated, Nathan Bishop Middle School. Uh, and the other piece of the puzzle, which we haven't talked about yet today, that, that is on everybody's mind is the state of our schools. And, uh, and even though we're in the midst of this state takeover, I don't believe that that means the mayor should just um, wash his hands of it and say, well, the state's in charge you know, call ride. Uh, and, and instead, I think that even perhaps more importantly now in the midst of this takeover, this, this the mayor needs to be the leading advocate and champion for our students and fight to hold right accountable, fight to make sure that, that students and parents have a voice and, and to make sure that our schools are improving. Yeah, looking at that issue, it was just about a month ago now that that Commissioner Infante Green inside a Senate hearing said to or answered questions and and then reiterated them here on the podcast that, you know, look, it's going to be at least 2027. That was her words before there can be a reasonable expectation that the school would be returned. School system would be returned to to Providence control. You know, what, what's your reaction to that? You've got your opponent near Villa Fortune, who's kind of pitching herself as the education mayor, so to speak. And there's this division of thought. One, people say, hey, wait a minute, you know, the schools for 30 years, however many decades it was, have underperformed. There needs to be a major change no matter who is overseeing that. At the same time, you know, you look at what's happening in New York City with Mayor Adams right now pushing for city control of schools there because they've seen more success with that sort of closer magnifying glass. What's your reaction to the thought of 2027 as the earliest possible date for for return to control, uh, Providence control of the district? You know, I think it really depends on who the who the governor is. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I, I was a supporter. I've been very clear. I was a supporter of the takeover. Uh, I believed that for decades we had been letting students down. I, I also believe that the kind of changes that the mayor was able to secure, any mayor, this is not an indictment of any specific mayor, but that any mayor was able to, to achieve were modest. Um, they're iterative. Uh, the, the control was limited uh, between the contract and other constraints. And so the state had extra ability, extra powers, uh, extra authority to make bigger changes. And I believed bigger changes were necessary. Uh, and so the question for me about whether we extend the takeover is, do we have, and hopefully as, as the mayor, do I have a partner in the governor's office who wants to make more bigger changes? If if the next governor is that partner, then I'm very open to an extension. If the next governor is not open to big changes, then all we've done is taken responsibility from the mayor and given them to the governor to get the same results. And I'd rather have the schools back. Um, so I'm watching the mayor, the governor's race, just like uh, you know, actively engaged in my race because I think that, that has a huge impact on where do we go from here. I think in general, a partnership between the city and, and the state is something that that people want. And perhaps, in, you know, I, I recall in COVID, the beginning of COVID-19, you know, Mayor Lorza would call a press conference and then all of a sudden there, but you would be appearing with Governor Mundo at basically the same time of day on a similar press conference. There seemed to be a lack of uh, fluidity there. Um, of course, we saw the Alorza, you know, confrontation, if you will, with Governor McKee and those are the things that the average person sees. The inner workings are different. There's certainly a lot of cross-pollination of ideas, but do you, do you think that there needs to be an enhanced partnership between the city and the state on a regular basis, perhaps even a liaison type of um, approach to things? Well, there's certainly a partnership and a, a good collaborative relationship between the city and the state is critical to the city's success. Providence in particular is in a unique position as the capital city, the hosting government offices, hosting 
a lot of tax-exempt institutions, um, subject to many state mandates, there's, there's very little that we can do to be successful without state partnership. And so, uh, you know, I think there's probably multiple ways to structure that. It starts with a, a functional relationship between the governor and the mayor and with the, legisla the legislature. Uh, but it, it's absolutely critical that we have a mayor with good relationships with the state uh, in order to be successful. I mean, one of the big things that's going to come up early next year is the renegotiation with the tax exempt entities, the colleges and the hospitals. Um, and we're probably going to need the state's help with that. Uh, in order for the city to meet its upcoming financial challenges, we need to get to a better agreement with these nonprofit institutions that now comprise 40% of the land in Providence. Um, that makes it really hard for us to balance our budget every year. Uh, and we're going to have to work closely with the state on that because when uh, Brown University or Lifespan grows and adds jobs, which is great, great for the economy, great for the state. Those people pay income tax, they pay sales tax, they pay payroll tax, all of which goes to the state. And the place they go to work every day does not pay property taxes, which would have come to the city. Uh, and that's the uh, uh, one of the most important things that'll hit early next year. Yeah, without question, it also impacts the housing scenario, especially in the case of Brown University, when you know, the more go they gobble up, the less that there is available for the average person who's not affiliated with Brown University. Um, what about LaSalle Academy? I mean, I think this is a really, there's a lot of hypotheticals in this, you know, and it's it's not an A or B, you know, should we tax Brown University and LaSalle? But generally speaking, you, you're in favor of in increasing the tax burden of those nonprofit and academic institutions here in the state, in the city, yeah. I should say. Yeah, I mean, I would probably... Uh, not use the word tax because they will fight that tooth and nail, but um, the large nonprofit institutions need to contribute more to the financial stability of the city. There's multiple ways to accomplish that goal, um, but they consume city services. We still send ambulances, we send police, we plow their streets, we pave their roads. Um, and yet they don't contribute financially towards those services or they don't contribute enough. Uh, and so uh, I'm looking forward to those negotiations. I've got some ideas already uh, to be sure, uh, but it's a, it, it'll be one of the most important things we do next year. Yeah. Plus Al's argument will be, well, we take a number of students outside out of the Providence school districts so or we're educating students and that lessens the burden on the school district itself. Is that an acceptable version of a negotiation tactic in your mind or does it have to increase? I mean, I think that's a fair point. You know, Boston has, uh, and I think it's greater Boston because I think it includes Cambridge, has a, a pilot framework um, where they, pilot payment in lieu of taxes framework where uh, there's uh, an assessment made of what the taxes should be and then there's a percentage that in large nonprofit institutions pay, but they also can get credit, um, what they call community benefit um, credits, where you know they get some credit for, in this case, you know, say with LaSalle for the amount of scholarship students that they take. Or, you know, if they were to, I, I don't know that they do, but let's just say, for example, some large private school started allowed public school kids to use their athletic facilities. And so there's a way to quantify some of these community uh, benefits that they provide as a way to kind of, quote unquote, get credit for um, what they might have paid in taxes otherwise. I think that's a reasonable framework. And many of our institutions, our large institutions, do provide some of these benefits. 
you know, they're not all equal. We probably, we need to come up with a framework for how to quantify them or how to value them. Um, and, and then we can start to answer the question of, is it enough? Mm, very interesting. Every month here on Bartholomew Town, I take you inside Rhode Island Public Health, presented by Commonwealth Care Alliance. You know, we talk about the issues that aren't necessarily COVID or a hospital merger, the nuances, the interesting people, the innovation that's happening in healthcare, and much more. Inside Rhode Island Public Health, every month, right here on Bartholomew Town, presented by Commonwealth Care Alliance. Rhode Island and national politics, media, arts, and newsmakers. Bartholomew Town with Bill Bartholomew, Saturdays at 3 p.m. on News Talk 99.7 FM and AM 630 WPRO. Now back to B-Town. In terms of the fiscal health of the city, I mean, look, the pension obligations, that's, that's one thing. You know, specifically speaking with COLA for retirees, give us your, I guess, broad 36,000 foot view of fiscal health of the city and how to improve that. And then in, in turn, how that impacts the city's residents, the city's employees, retirees, so on and so forth. Yeah. I mean, the city has been, and, and I give the mayor a lot of credit for this. They have run small surpluses for eight years and that's no small feat. Uh, and so on a, on a operating basis, on a go forward basis, the city is, you know, making ends meet though it's a struggle, but they've been making ends meet. You know, we've kind of, but we've got two big problems financially. One is the erosion of the tax base. City government is still primarily funded by property taxes. This is the same conversation about nonprofit institutions. And that percentage just keeps getting bigger because the institutions keep growing. So that's one problem. And then two, you've got this iceberg of unfunded pension liabilities. Uh, and, and it really, I think iceberg is the right analogy because you've got the, the benefits for current employees, the people who are working today. Ever Going back to the Cicilline administration, really, the, the contracts and benefits awarded to current employees are relatively affordable and competitive with other cities. Um, that's the tip of the iceberg. That's the part of the iceberg that's above the water. <laughs> the right. part that's below the water is this unfunded liability, which is which is benefits given 30 years ago to people who are currently retired and then payments skipped. So like just like a family uh, or an individual who makes the minimum payment on their credit card, like you can never pay off your credit card. So we we skipped payments or underfunded payments for a period of time, primarily in the 90s. And, and we're paying off this debt. And there's kind of nothing. There are very few options other than to remain diligent um, in making the payments and looking for strategies and opportunities as they come along. Uh, and so these two things, the erosion of the tax base and this, this longstanding debt, the iceberg below the water of, of not current employees, uh, of people who don't work here anymore for benefits that were given out a long time ago and then payments that were skipped. Uh, and, and those are our two major financial challenges that, you know, is a, is a slow grind and it is crowding out or eroding our ability to make the kind of investments we want to make to improve our schools, to make our city safer, to fix all of our streets and sidewalks. What's the answer? Is it increasing taxes for residents? Is it attracting industry or even, um, you know, I've, I've seen people propose aquariums and these types of things to try to generate activity. I'm not so sure that people want that, but it, what is it? How do you, how do we raise more money on a, on a, you know, essentially a, a very basic level? 
<laughs> so I, there's one passionate aquarium guy who tweets at me. Right? <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, I'm not anti-aquarium, but I don't, I don't know if they're, I don't know the, the financials on an aquarium these days. Um, so we definitely need to continue to grow the tax base, right? I mean, that's, that's critical. So some of it is to, to get a better agreement with the large nonprofit institutions. Some of it is just to continue to grow the city, you know, see the 195 land get developed, make something of some of our vacant and abandoned property, like just continue to build and grow in a responsible way so that the tax base expands. Um, and then, uh, you know, on this unfunded liability question, we got to just continue to make progress and look for opportunities. You know, the, the mayor is proposing this, this box. I, you know, I, I think it's a, a tool that I'd like to have as mayor, but it's not a solution in and of itself. It's a strategy that should be part of an overall package. I've been advocating to get into the state system, uh, so-called MERS, um, as a way to save on, you know, right now the city has its own financial advisors, its own lawyers and bankers, et cetera, to get the same advice that the state gets. And, and there's no reason that we need to have our own pension fund. This isn't saying I'm closing the fund. I just want to move it into the state system where we could save money and, and also, by the way, protect against a future mayor from skipping payments or creating the same problem that we find ourselves in right now. Yeah, very interesting. Um, you know, you held a press conference on Monday on crime in Providence. You know, it's it's a challenge because there's the optical side of this where, you know, people in, I don't know, South County or something like that look at Providence and say, I'm never going to go there again because I'm going to, if I go to dinner, some guy's going to ride by on a dirt bike and, you know, take minimum take the hat off my head and pull a TikTok prank or a maximum I'm going to end up, you know, in the hospital, whatever it is, th this perception that Providence is dangerous. It's, it's, yeah. it's really dreadful. At the same time, they're just down the street from where I'm recording this right now. There were two terrible events that took place, gun violence events over the, the, the past weekend. So how do we do this? I mean, look, the police issue is going to be, you're going to have people who will never compromise either way on that. They're going to be hundred percent. I'm back the blue guy. And there's going to be people who demand no police in Providence whatsoever. We're just going to have citizen patrols or something like that. How do you practically get this done? Yeah, yeah, no, and you're right. It is a it is a problem, exactly as you point out. I mean, on the one hand, you know, reputations are kind of like easy to lose and hard to get back, and we're and we've got this reputation that it's an unsafe city. I do not think that um, people from the suburbs or throughout Southern New England that might want to come to Federal Hill for dinner or go to PPAC to see a show should worry about their safety. I, I think that they are safe, and I hope that people do come. At the same note, you're absolutely right. There is too much gun violence in our neighborhoods, particularly late at night, and uh, and we need to do something about it. And so, on what I was advocating on Monday, um, we you know we have the benefit of extra officers now. Last summer, we were down to about 400 police officers. There was a class that graduated around Thanksgiving. We've had a few retirements since then, so now we're up to 440. So we have 40 more officers than we had nine months ago. And and what I was advocating for was that the, the department. Uh, use some of that additional uh, manpower to put more officers in the gun task force and in the investigative bureau so that we can, you know, really be targeted in, in at least what my priorities are, which is getting illegal guns off the street and solving some of these crimes um, as a way to try to stop the cycle. Uh, I think that's right. Uh, I also think that you know, I hear your point that there's going to be people on both ends of the spectrum, but I do think there's a whole lot of people in the middle uh, of which I would put myself as one of those, which is that Providence has a 
reputation and uh, a good reputation as a, as a department in a city that understands community policing. We're one of the only police departments in the region that's nationally accredited as a community policing. We train other departments in community policing. Um, and I think that most of the community, um, you know, recognizes what a hard job it is and wants to see a visible um, presence, not in an intimidating way, but want to see officers walk on the beat, want to see officers back on the bikes, riding in the patrol like they like they do, like the mounted command. Like there are there are strategies where when we have I go to a lot of community meetings as a candidate for mayor, I see police officers at most of them and I see residents happy to see their neighborhood, you know, the district lieutenant or the neighborhood officer there where they can ask questions, share their concerns. Uh, and I want to keep seeing more of that. And I think that most of the community wants to see more of that. There's no tolerance for abusive policing. You know, bad officers or officers who engage in, in wrong actions need to be held accountable. Absolutely. But at the same note, policing needs to be part of the solution to create a safe city. So you, to that point, you would be in favor of, of an adjustment, if not repeal, to Leobor? Um, so I, I'm in favor of reforming Leobor. Uh, one of the things that I think probably maybe most importantly with respect to Leobor, you know, this was written pre, I don't know if it was pre-cell phone, but it was certainly pre-smartphone. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, now there are real restrictions on what both management and the union can say because of Leobor. And we live in a world where there's video on everything all the time. And, and I think it is very frustrating. And I think it erodes confidence in the police, in the mayor, um, when we can't say what happened when everyone's looking at 10 different cell phone videos that get posted individually, uh, like instantly. Um, so I think we need to free up um, both sides to be able to talk about an incident uh, earlier. I just think that that needs to respond at the times. Uh, I think that there is a uh, there should be we should be looking at expanding the arbitration panel um, to include some sort of uh, civilian with some experience, retired judge, um, people with um, understanding of the laws or criminal justice system um, to give a more balanced approach to the arbitration panel. Uh, and I think we should look at uh, ex extending the number of days that a officer can be suspended. Right. I think right now it's 14 or something like that. And, you know, that's, you know, there are incidents that have been captured on cell phone where you go, wow, you know, what is this guy thinking? You know, I recall the Sale Street incident, certainly a challenging police moment, no question about it. You got people throwing beer bottles, a large crowd, but then, you know, you've got someone taunting the crowd in uniform that erodes confidence right there. And, it, you know, there was a reaction, but boy, that, that incident still resonates as an example where people say, well, Providence police are bullies because this one, you know, Officer Horahan shouted at the, taunted at the crowd or taunted the crowd. So it's a, it's a major challenge because that cell phone video aspect of things. No and question. Technology has totally changed all this. And I think mostly for the better. I think it's, I think the body worn cameras have been a success. Um, but sometimes, you know, I suppose this is true, like in, in all of our technology enabled life, sometimes there's just so much information that you need to make sense of it all. Yeah. All right. Last couple of minutes here. So um, you know, there was ideas floating around in the past of a, a Providence nightmare. Somebody had suggested Allen's Avenue become sort of like a new downtown hub, or I guess not downtown, a new sort of um, auxiliary downtown nightclub area. And just in general, PVD Fest, reviving the year-round downtown sort of nightlife energy, 
music, arts. We've got great things happening, but there's no question. It's not like it was um, in, even in the early 2000s where you'd go downtown, there'd be a number of music venues, there'd be a number of restaurants open late at night. I went to an event at, at Providence Performing Arts Center recently. Uh, it was like seven o'clock on a Friday and somebody, we wanted a coffee and it was like, we're walking around, there's no, no, not even a Dunkin' Donuts or Starbucks open. How do we change that? And should we change yeah. that? Right. So, so first of all, let me tell you, I, you know, I, I love that Providence and I want to see Providence thrive as a, you know, a kind of an entertainment dining, uh, uh, capital of the region. And, and I want to see it thrive at night. Uh, I do remember, I mean, I don't know if you knew the late Frank Latore. Um, I remember talking almost 10 years ago with him about a nighttime, a con- a nighttime air. You know, he used to always talk passionately about the other nine to five, which was, sure. you know, 9 PM to 5 AM. Uh, and I think he's, he was right. And, and, and I look forward to his mayor, you know, finding city resources, a city people who can help coordinate. We, we don't give a lot of thought about city services and uh, for the other nine to five. And someone needs to think through these things. Uh, you know, I've been talking to some, some bar and club owners who, you know, have been talking to me about the need for Uber and Lyft, some zones for them to park because there's traffic congestion. And, you know, in the middle of the night, there's nobody from the city that's helping sort that out for them right now. Um, but more broadly, you know, particularly post-pandemic, the city needs to be trying to prime the pump, bringing back, um, uh, activities and events to bring people into Providence to help stimulate the economy. Um, you know, the there are plenty of coffee shops and restaurants. They're not open, not because of some city regulations, because they didn't think they had the customers to support it. Uh, and maybe staffing, um, given the kind of workforce shortages right now. And so the city should be thinking about um, how do we, you know, in my case, I think we should be thinking about how do we spread out PVD Fest maybe so that it's not just one big bang on a, on a day and a half, but, you know, throughout the summer, how do we attract other special events? How do we, you know, make this an activity and take advantage of our thriving uh, and, and vibrant arts community? Many artists who live here, but often have to go find work elsewhere or venues elsewhere. Um, to make it an attraction uh, in conjunction with public safety, in conjunction with city services, so that like it it works at night and people have a good time uh, and can can safely enjoy our great city. Very quickly, two two uh, quick ones. Well, that's sort of a, obviously two quick ones. Very quickly, um, the the giving meters a dollar seventy seven a day. Should they just come out at this point? I know that I saw them in New Haven. Dan McGowan said they've got the Boston Globe reports that they're in Los Angeles, and it's. You know, it's sort of a fun idea, but at the same time, you know, is it is it deceptive to a, a passerby that says, "Yeah, let me throw a buck in here and uh, you know hope that this is contributing to some massive pile of cash"? You know, is, should they be there anymore? Well, based upon the report I just saw, a given stranger who contributed a buck, that seems to happen like once every six months. So, um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, they they obviously haven't worked, um, and yeah. so and it looks like we're spending more than than we're able to donate as a result of them. So, uh, if the current administration isn't going to try to revive interest in it, then they should come out. It's a distraction, and and it's one of these things that just becomes a bit of a punchline. So. Um, Obviously, uh, we all should be thinking about how to help those less fortunate. Uh, I support Crossroads and, and other organizations, yeah. Amos House, that are that are directly servicing the uh, unhoused in in Providence and in Rhode Island generally. Uh, but it seems like maybe the Giving Meteors uh, was a failed experiment, and uh, and maybe it would be better served to take them out so that nobody's talking about them anymore. 
last question, special allowances for parking for, for curbside pickup food. You know, there's several restaurants on South Water Street and even North Main Street that, you know, I started to notice that, by the way, these are places that I really enjoy and love going to. And I enjoy the fact that I can park and it so it actually benefits me. But I question the, the validity of, you know, being able to set up traffic cones overnight to blockade parking spots yeah. so that the next day you can have curbside pickup. I saw Boston was charging, at least in one portion of the city, a pretty significant fee. I think it's like $5,000 a year to have a spot that is reserved for that. Uh, how long should that go on for? Do you know if it's tied to any kind of emergency order? And is that a strategy that we should should engage with going forward? You know, It does benefit the consumer in, in a micro sense, but then the average person that's just trying to park to go for a walk on the pedestrian bridge or go to school at RISD is now circling around while literally probably eight to 10 spots are taken for this curbside program. Yeah, I think that, uh, I, I don't know if it's an emergency order, but the, you know, the pandemic kind of pushed through some big changes uh, much faster than, than adoption would have normally happened. And so yeah. uh, it, we need to rethink our, our kind of street space in light of all of that. I made reference to earlier the Uber and Lyft situation. I think the same is true of delivery services uh, or, or you know, Grubhub and DoorDash and all that stuff. They're not going away. Uh, so we need to rethink about how do the food delivery services, you know, run in quickly, efficiently, and then deliver on a service that people want. Uh, and just like late at night or in certain areas, you know, how do we properly manage traffic with um, ride hailing services? So um, as is often the case, government lags behind technology innovations. Yeah. Uh, I think that, that that disconnect got even worse because this technology adoption happened so quickly through the pandemic. Um, that we're even further behind, uh, but it's probably worth rethinking kind of all of these services that are now using or requiring parking or loading zones or standing zones uh, in a way that's rational. And, and I haven't seen anybody in Rhode Island yet tackle that. And it's certainly something that needs to happen. He's Brett Smiley. He's running for mayor of Providence. Always a pleasure. Thanks, Bill. Rhode Island's podcast of record, B-Town.